Will you believe when the world mocks? Will you believe when the world ridicules? Will you believe when the world says what they believe is so ridiculous it's laughable? Do not fear, stop fearing, only believe. So the contrast here between fear and faith, we recognize that Jesus' command here is to continue believing, stop fearing, but instead continue believing, stop focusing on this, this over here, which is bringing fear, and instead believe, continue believing. You know, in all of the, all four gospels, there is not a single account in all four gospels of Jesus ever coddling unbelief or tolerating unbelief or excusing unbelief. Jesus was firm and sure and direct regarding unbelief. Jesus was always quick to point out unbelief and to call people always to believe, even in the most extreme of situations. This is a pretty extreme situation. Your daughter's dead. Jesus says to him, stop fearing, but believe. That's a pretty extreme situation. But there's even a more extreme situation. We just read about it a few weeks ago. The boat's going down. We've been on the Sea of Galilee our whole lives. We are sailors and fishermen. We know the sea. This boat is going down. Why were you afraid? Why did you stop believing? That's a pretty extreme situation. But notice Jesus never, and no matter, regardless of the extremity of the situation, Jesus never excused unbelief. His call was always to believe over fear. So this disposition, this heart disposition, this mindset of believing what God says over what appears to be contradictory to what God says and not allowing the thing that's right in front of you, which is contradictory to what God says, not allowing that to instill fear. This is the essence of the faith that Jesus is getting in. Now, we just really are kind of emerging from a time in which our culture around us has really been on this hyper sort of mode of fear, 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 right? I mean, we live in a culture that feeds off of fear. The culture all around you wants you to fear everything. And we just had, what, a two or three year period in which that was just really heightened to a whole new level. Fear, fear, fear. You've got a lot to be afraid of. And so what this should do is this should speak to our hearts. You know what? We live in a world that's a very dangerous world. We live in a world of of sicknesses and viruses. We live in a world of of political enemies of China's and North Korea's and Russia's who would love to do us harm and they got lots of nasty weapons. We live in a world of terrorism. We live in a world of violence. So we live in a world of real, true, actual danger. But this world of actual danger wants your heart to fear it more than you trust God. And this is the essence. This is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, of faith over fear. This disposition in the mind, in the soul, in the heart that sees a reality and that reality says to you, be afraid. And God says to you, 
Why are you afraid? Are you not my child? Do I not know all of your needs? Do I not control all things in this world? Have I not promised you that I will be with you? That I will never leave you, never forsake you? Have I not promised you that everything that I allow to touch you will be for your good? Why are you so afraid? And so this is the essence of what Jairus is facing here now. But notice, Jesus not only commands him to stop fearing and keep believing, but I want to notice something else about Jesus' command to him, or should we say plea. Jesus is not only commanding of him to stop fearing and keep believing, Jesus is also gentle and encouraging. In Luke's account of this, Luke gives us one extra piece of information that really is helpful. In Luke chapter 8, verse 50, we read this. Jesus, on hearing this, meaning the the news of the daughter that has now died, Jesus, upon hearing this, answered him, saying, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. You hear what Jesus did there? He gave one more piece for Jairus, just just to say, "Believe, believe, believe, Jairus, and she will be well. Jesus is trying, if you will, to put into Jairus the faith that he needs to overcome this fear that he faces. And the gentleness and the encouraging nature of Jesus are remarkable at this point. It reminds me of what's said about our Savior in Isaiah chapter 42, where we're told that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not extinguish. Now what that's speaking of, that's speaking of the heart that has a fragile, weak faith. And that's the bruised reed. And the, the, the passage says, even the bruised reed, he won't break it. He's gentle with it. He is not coddling or accepting of unbelief, yet he is gentle with the one whose faith is new and weak and shallow and misguided, if you will, and misinformed, if you will. A bruised reed he will not break a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And so in his tender mercy, Jairus, stop being afraid. Don't stop believing. Continue believing. And she will be well. Verse 37. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Now, so, so now we go back once again to a common theme in Mark, and that's the theme of the outsiders and the insiders. Remember, this was big in chapter 4. Those on the inside, chapter 4, verse 10, 11, 12. Those on the inside, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of heaven. To those on the outside, it's just in parables. Chapter 3, Jesus and His called out ones are inside the house, sitting at Jesus' feet, receiving the teaching. His family comes, they're on the outside. His called out ones are on the inside. This theme of the inside and the outside. So here we see Peter, James, and John singled out. There'll be two more times that these same three disciples are singled out. Jesus invites them up the Mount of Transfiguration. And then in chapter 14, Jesus invites them to go along further in the Garden of Gethsemane on that fateful night and invite them to prayer. So he singles these out and we read that he allowed no one to follow him except these three. Now, wait a minute. I thought the crowd was just thronging around Jesus. Didn't we just read that last week? That the crowd was mobbing Jesus. And Luke's word, Luke, remember he used the word for choke. The crowd was choking Jesus. Yet here, Jesus won't allow anyone to follow him except for these three and Jairus. 
You see, even in all the mobbing crowd, let's not lose sight of the fact Jesus is not controlled by the crowd. Jesus controls the crowd, not the other way around. So even though the mob seems huge and even out of control, even when Jesus said to his disciples, make sure you have a boat in case I need to escape this crowd lest they crush me, even so, Jesus controls the crowd, not the other way around. And when Jesus wants to be done with the crowd, he won't allow them to follow him. So he allows no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, verse 38. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. So notice what Jairus is still doing. Jairus is still believing and he's still acting on faith. Why? Because they've now arrived at his house. The son of God knows where Jairus lives. He doesn't need Jairus to lead him there. But nevertheless, Jairus takes Jesus to his house, meaning in the face of the news, your daughter's dead. Jairus is still believing and he still takes Jesus to the house. His faith has been challenged by the crowd. His faith has been challenged by the people with the news. Now his faith is going to be challenged once again. Verse 38, they come to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. So here he arrives at the scene of death, the initial moments, you should, you could say, of a funeral. You know, one thing I've observed about cultures, different cultures, we all know cultures have lots of differences, but there are two ways in which I feel like you can really put a finger on all the major differences, or at least many of the major differences between cultures, and that's simply by looking at two things, weddings and funerals. You ever notice that? If you look at weddings and funerals, that tells you a lot about the differences in culture, the way one culture celebrates the beginning of a new family and the way a culture says goodbye to their loved ones. Those two ways can tell you a lot about a culture. And so when we come to this aspect of culture of saying goodbye to a loved one, let's just notice some of the differences here. We're we're told that Jesus comes upon this commotion. Now that's the word that's often translated riot. In Acts chapter 20, Right after the big riot in Ephesus that breaks out, Acts chapter 20 uses this word to describe the riot. So this is a, this is a big, loud, chaotic commotion that Jesus comes upon. We're told that people are weeping and wailing loudly. So a Hebrew funeral, a Jewish funeral was a very loud, chaotic, cacophonous type of affair. How are our funerals? subdued and very quiet and very respectful. You know, when you go to the wake, how does everybody talk like this? You know, because you don't want to talk too loud. Everybody's talking in hushed tones. When you go to the funeral, what's the music like? Oh, it's beautiful. Lovely music, not loud, but it's beautiful music. A Jewish funeral could not be more opposite than that. A Jewish funeral was filled with loud crying and loud wailing, lots of tearing of the clothes, and lots of screaming out. In fact, Jewish funerals were famous for what's known as paid mourners. Paid mourners, it was, it was actually a gilded occupation. Paid mourners, which were almost always women, 
were women that, I mean, that's how they made their living. You paid a, a mourner to come to the wake and to the funeral, and their job was to be in the most distress they could possibly be in. Loud wailing, loud crying, anguish, that sort of thing. So the paid mourners, I'll show you in the text a little bit later how we know that they were paid mourners, but the paid mourners are here, and they're wailing loudly. But not only that, there's also music, but you think of music and you think, well, music is pleasing, not in this case. Matthew tells us that the flute players were already there. And once again, I mean, I think about flute music. What do you think of with flute music? Nice sort of quiet, sort of pleasing sort of music. Not this kind of flute music. The flute music that was played at funerals was intentionally shrill and harsh and full of discordant notes which means just simply notes that don't match the song on purpose. The intention was to hurt the ears. The intention was to be painful to the ears and to the eyes. Why? Well, think about the theology behind this. There's something wrong here. There's something very wrong. Death is wrong. And death has just happened. And so that was the culture. They showed this passing of a loved one by the loud wailing and the mourning and the, the discordant notes. Maybe this helps you make a little bit more sense of when Jesus says of John the Baptist, he says, we played a funeral dirge and you didn't react the proper way. So this music, this loud, harsh noise was intended to be unsettling, to say to you, this is wrong. Death is wrong. The passing of the loved one, especially in this case, the passing of a 12-year-old girl, something's just wrong about that. We shouldn't hear beautiful, pleasing music. We should hear wailing and lots of it. We should hear awful music that hurts our ears. And that's exactly what Jesus comes upon. People weeping and wailing loudly. Verse 39, And when He had entered, He said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. In other words, this is the wrong reaction. You're doing this funeral dirge for someone who's asleep. child's not dead, but the child is asleep. Why are you doing this? So the question must be asked, well, as we know, as the story is going to play out, Jesus will raise the girl from death. But the question must be asked. Jesus Himself just said she's not dead. Jesus Himself just said she's sleeping. Could it be that she was just really sick and just appeared to be dead and Jesus revives her? After all, He Himself said that he's not, she's not dead, she's sleeping. Well, I think that we can immediately discount that for a couple of reasons. One, there are professional mourners here mourning the girl's death, and that's sort of their business. I, I think they know a dead body when they see it. You know, people that lived 2,000 years ago weren't stupid. And sometimes we can fall into that trap of just thinking that just because somebody lived 2,000 years ago, they were naive and easy to fool and stupid. And they weren't. They knew a dead person and they knew a sick person. Furthermore, Luke in his account says when Jesus tells them she's asleep, they, Luke says that they laugh at him knowing she was dead. So Luke says explicitly, the physician Luke says explicitly, knowing she was dead, they laughed at him. So the girl is good and dead and on the way to being cold. But Jesus says she's not dead, she's only sleeping. What does Jesus mean by this? Well, he doesn't explain, but I think there's a couple of things that we can gather from this. First, I think that we can gather this. Jesus' raising of the girl back to life 
for him is no harder than waking someone up from a sleep. Jesus is going to raise her back to life. It will be this effortless raising, restoring of life to the girl. And for him, it'll be like waking someone up from a deep sleep. But perhaps the the more important thing to see here is that the Scriptures, particularly the New Testament, will frequently describe physical death for the believer as sleeping. I go to awake Lazarus, for he's asleep. Or... uh, at Jesus' resurrection, the t- many tombs were opened and those who were asleep came out of the tombs. Or the words of Paul, those who are asleep in Christ. Right. So we see this too many times to, to really number here, this metaphor of asleep in Christ when it's dis- describing the Christian who has experienced physical death. And I think the reason for that is, let's be careful, not to think that there is actually this type of sleep that we're engaged in, that, that after physical death happens to us, that we're actually asleep in some sort of way or unconscious in some sort of way. That's not what the Scriptures teach at all. The Scriptures teach that the soul is always conscious. The soul is always aware. When physical death occurs, the soul remains aware of where it is, what's happening, what's around it. The soul remains aware. So we're not asleep in sort of a unconscious sort of way, but instead the scriptures want us to see physical death for the Christian in that peace-like restful analogy of sleep. That's how we're supposed to think of physical death, as a restful sleep, as a, a peaceful type of sleep. Now, no, not all sleeps are peaceful, right? Sometimes they're fitful. Sometimes they're filled with bad dreams and different things. But isn't that what you think of when the word sleep is said? Sleep, don't you think? Peace, rest. And that's how we're to think. Sleep, peace, rest. She's not dead, she's asleep. Verse 40, and they laughed at him. That's what tells us that they were paid mourners right there. How do you go from loud wailing to laughing instantly? If the wailing was real, you don't. They're paid to, they're paid to cry. They weren't paid to laugh. Because what Jesus just said just set them off. They laughed at him. Now, if you think about this, I, I don't think that there is a more frightening or sad verse in all of Scripture than what just happened. They laughed at their Creator. They mocked their maker. Oh, what a frightening thing that is. But all the patience, the supernatural self-control of Jesus to not incinerate them immediately. How does it make you feel for someone to laugh at you? How does it make you feel for someone to see something that you do or hear something you say and they find that so ridiculous that they're moved to laughter? How does that make you feel? The Son of God was just laughed at. And He exhibits the most extreme self-control in the face of their mocking. But yet, once again... Jairus is faced with a decision. Those around Jesus are laughing at what he just said. 
Will he continue to believe? Or will he fall prey to the crowd that's laughing at him? Do you know how his faith is now being tested? Do you know how difficult it would have been for Jairus to stand beside Jesus and continue to believe in the face of those who are laughing at him? After all, he is the ruler of the synagogue. He does have a name to protect. He does have a status, a position to respect, to, 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 uh, to maintain. So he's forced with yet another decision. The decision, will I continue to believe while he's being laughed at? Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, that in the last days, we know that scoffers will come. Will he continue to believe as his master is being laughed at? It reminds me of another story of when another was asked to believe the seemingly impossible in the face of laughter. And I'm thinking, of course, about Scripture's model, Scripture's example, Scripture's human example for faith, who was, of course, Abraham. And you remember the promise made to Abraham, Abraham, I will make a nation of you. And that was a wonderful promise when Abraham was 35. But now Abraham's 100. And though they tried to help God out, they just, just wouldn't work. Now Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90, still no child. And then remember when God visits and He says, when I come back next year, you'll have a son. You remember what his wife does? Falls on the ground laughing. Same situation. In fact, it's the same situation all of us face. Every disciple face that, faces that. Will you believe when the world mocks? Will you believe when the world ridicules? Will you believe when the world says what they believe is so ridiculous it's laughable? Scripture calls genuine faith that type of faith which believes the seemingly impossible in the face of that which seems to say there's no way. That's what Scripture calls genuine faith. Scripture doesn't call genuine faith believing in something that's really close to what the culture believes anyway. Believing in a God who rewards the good and punishes the wicked. And so if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you stand to gain. If not, it's the reverse. Or when you believe in some sort of God, this, this heavenly passer out of blessings. All your blessings, all your best lives now, right? When we believe in those sorts of things, we're not believing in something that's so contrary to the culture that Scripture calls that actual genuine faith. What Scripture calls true and genuine faith is when we believe the seemingly impossible because God has said it. So back to Abraham, our example of faith. Abraham is told, I will make you the father of nations. You remember that night when God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, come on outside. Abraham comes outside. Look up. Can you imagine what the sky looked like in 3000 BC? Look up at those stars, Abraham. If you can number them, then you can also number your children. Not speaking of political Israel, but speaking of the church, of God's people, of God's nation. If you can number those, then you can number those whom you will be the father of. And Abraham is a hundred. <laughs> 